every once in a while, Christianity Today will run these articles wherein people will write out their testimonies. And uh, from time to time, I'll peruse them, and uh, some catch my attention. They're just really encouraging. Uh, One that I came across recently was written by Nicole Cliff, and she details how she was living life happily as an atheist and apart from God, without a care in the world, and then uh, one day she stumbled upon an obituary penned by John Ortberg in memory of the late Dallas Willard. She writes, It was very unsettling to suddenly feel like a boat being tossed on the waves. I wasn't sad, I wasn't frightened, I just had too many feelings. It was getting out of hand. You just can't go around crying all the time. At this point, I reached a crossroads. I sat down to my, and said to myself, Okay, Nicole, you have two choices. Option one, you can stop reading books about Jesus. Option two, you could think with greater intention about why you are overwhelmed by your emotions. It occurred to me that if option two proved fruitless, I could always return to option one. So I emailed a friend who is a Christian And I asked if we could talk about Jesus. I instantly regretted sending that email. And if humanly possible, would have clawed it back through the internet. Technology having failed me though, my message reached its recipient. She said she would be very happy to talk with me about Jesus. You probably already know this, but Christians love talking about Jesus. I spent the few weeks before our call feeling like an idiot, wondering what on earth I planned to ask her. Do you like Jesus? What was Jesus' deal? What was that stuff with, with the fig tree? Now we reach the part of the story that gets a bit hand wavy. About an hour before our call, I knew. I believed in God. So when my friend called, I told her, awkwardly, that I wanted to have a relationship with God. The story continues to tell us how Nicole's friend let her know that she could have forgiveness of her sins and relationship with God and his people if she would simply repent of those sins and submit to Jesus as Lord. When you take a step back and look at the story from afar, you can go, Man, God was orchestrating these usual, normal, kind of humdrum circumstances to bring about Nicole's conversion. She was happy in her life, just kind of riding along, and then all of a sudden her interest was piqued towards the divine. Her heart was cracked open to Jesus. God had Nicole right where he wanted her. He had her right where she needed to be. And he had her friend right where she needed to be too. I mean, man, how easy is that as a Christian? Somebody emails you and says, hey, I want to talk about Jesus. And then if it, they, they make it even easier when you call them. They say, actually, I don't even need to talk about it. I just need to know how can I have a relationship with God through Jesus. It's easy. I assume Nicole's friends and others were praying for her in the background. Nevertheless, we can see that God was at work. This stuff happens. 
I came across a number of stories this week of Christians just, you know, sitting down next to people on airplanes and somebody leaning over and saying, hey, I was reading the Bible here and I'm not quite sure what to make of Jesus in, in John 3 here. Could, could you help me out? The person went, well, of course, I'm a pastor. That's great. Like, it, it, it blows my mind how often this happens and I don't, I don't think it should. God is constantly at work putting his people right where they need to be. He's constantly at work converting those who are far from him, drawing those who don't have faith into faith. A great example of this is even your own conversion. If you are here this morning and you are a Christian, you can probably think back on your life and some circumstances that put you in this place or that place with this or that person at that church camp or uh, so that you heard that song or saw that billboard or you talked to that person over coffee or you came across that passage of Scripture and all of a sudden everything started to click and slowly but surely the light of the gospel came on in your mind and your heart was changed and, and all at once you said, I think I've become a Christian. And God had you right where he wanted you. Right where you needed to be. Non-Christian, if you are here this morning, I want you to know you aren't here by accident. God has placed you right where you need to be. I don't know if you will respond with faith, but I know He's orchestrated things for you to hear the gospel. Maybe you even find that you've actually, this week and past weeks, have been thinking an awful lot about Jesus and what He means for your life. This is already the sign of the Spirit's work within you. Most people don't think about Jesus at all. In fact, I don't know that many Christians think much about Jesus, sadly. Nevertheless, your softening, your openness to who Christ is, is evidence that he's, he's begun His work in you. You're, you're not here by accident this morning, friends. God has us all right where we need to be. We'll see a similar story in Acts chapter 8 this morning, back end of the chapter. That's the main idea, is that God puts his people right where they need to be. And I'm going to exhort you this morning to be ready, to be ready to obey when it doesn't make sense, to be ready to recognize eunuch opportunities. I shared that one with my wife, and she said, do you mean unique? And I said, that's how puns work. That's how puns work. Really proud of myself on that one. That's right, two points. Uh, be ready to recognize eunuch opportunities. And thirdly, be ready to explain who Jesus is. Let's pray, and we will we'll get into the text this morning. It's a fun one. Father, we thank you for the joy of knowing Christ as our Lord and Savior. We thank you that he died for our sins in our place on the cross, that he took hell so that we could have heaven. We thank you for this good news that uh, we get not just heaven, but more importantly, we get you and we get relationship with one another. There is no better news. We thank you that your word is so 
good. It's so good because it teaches us about you. And we pray that as we come and study your word this morning, we would fall more desperately in love with you. That we would delight more and more in the duty of obeying your word. That it would become a great source of joy. We, we come this morning not as empty vessels waiting to be filled up, but as torches ready to be ignited. God, cause us to burst into flame with affections for Christ. Do something incredible in us this day. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in the back half of Acts chapter 8, and we got here all the way from Acts chapter 1, uh, wherein we said the whole story of the book of Acts can be summarized, and Jesus goes up, the Spirit comes down, and the church goes out. And to this point, we've seen that begin to happen. Jesus ascends into heaven where he sits on the throne at the right hand of God, rules and reigns in chapter 1, and then in chapter 2, he pours out his Holy Spirit. His disciples begin proclaiming the wonderful works of God. They begin sharing the gospel. They begin telling people the truth that Jesus is Lord and he is worthy of all glory, honor, and praise. That he is worthy of your life. And people respond in the thousands, repenting of their sins, being baptized into the church. And then it's not too long before we see the church face some adversity. Persecution breaks out in various ways, but time and time again we see the word of God prevail. We see the church swelling within Jerusalem. Persecution intensifies in chapter 7. As Stephen gives his famous sermon about how the Jewish religious leaders are carrying on the heritage of their fathers by rejecting God's chosen servants. They rejected Joseph. They rejected Moses. Now they have rejected Christ and then they reject Stephen. And as Stephen lays in a pool of his own blood at the end of chapter 7 and we read of Saul's approval of his death at the beginning of chapter 8, we think to ourselves, are Jesus Words about the, the church bearing witness in Jerusalem and in Judea and to the ends of the earth are his words in peril? Is this prophecy not going to come true? Things look bad and then quickly we are reminded that God does not drive an ambulance. That he's in perfect control. As he utilizes the persecution of the church as a catalyst for the proclamation of the gospel. And we see that come to fruition in the first half of Acts chapter 8. Really the headline of the whole chapter is the gospel goes beyond the walls of Jerusalem. Jesus' words in verse 8 of chapter 1 are being fulfilled. In the first half of chapter 8 we saw Judea and Samaria. And in this back half of chapter 8, underneath that same headline, the gospel goes outside of Jerusalem, it's into Judea, it's into Samaria, we're going to see it goes to the ends of the earth. Now you're, you're going to look at your text and go, I don't see they went to the ends of the earth anywhere here. And that's right, you're not going to see those words there. 
but the gospel is going to go to an African eunuch who's from Ethiopia, which at the time, Ethiopia is just kind of this big chunk of Africa. And guess what the Romans considered it? The very edge of the world. It's going to go to this Ethiopian eunuch. Church history tells us that he goes on to be the first missionary to his people. A church is established in Africa. And the church will continue to spread the gospel throughout the rest of the book of Acts. There'll be a, a, a real watershed moment when everybody realizes that this gospel isn't just for Samaritans. It's, it's not just for people that are sympathetic to the Jewish religion like this God-fearing Ethiopian. It's also for Gentiles. But, but that's, that's where we're going. Right now, we're on the ends of the earth. And it's incredible how the gospel gets there. Let's look, look at verse 25. It's kind of a transitional verse here uh, between the story of the gospel going to Samaria and the gospel going to this Ethiopian eunuch. Verse 25. So after they, that's the apostles, had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they traveled back to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. What we see is they have come down to confirm Philip's ministry, Philip's preaching of the gospel. The Spirit's come on the Samaritans, and we've got one big happy church. It's, it's growing, but what we also see is that the apostles go back to Jerusalem. They preach the gospel on their way, but they go back, and Philip is going to go on. I want to point this out because Philip is not an apostle. This is important. Philip is an ordinary church member. He's just plain old Phil. You see him every Sunday. You see, ministry isn't solely the responsibility of super-Christians or so-called professionals. No, ministry is the responsibility of the church it's your responsibility. Remember last week or two weeks ago, we said, where the church goes, the gospel goes. It is our job collectively, it's your job to display the gospel in your relationships with one another, where to make the gospel visible in our forgiving of one another and in our asking of forgiveness from one another. We are to declare the gospel with words as we share Christ in all of our various spheres of influence where we live our lives. We are to be a gospel people. The gospel going forth is not merely the responsibility of pastors or of that weird Christian you know that's just really into it. No, it's all of our responsibilities. We're all called to participate. And so the apostles go home, and Philip goes on. But Philip's not left undisturbed. Look at verse 26. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip. Get up. Go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert road. So he got up and went. Wait a minute here. <laughs> Wait a minute. If I'm Philip, I have some questions, okay? I'm a little upset. 
Uh, I went into Samaria among a bunch of people that I don't like, smelly Samaritans, and, and I've, I've learned to love them. I've preached the gospel to them. The church now is booming. A revival has broken out. I mean, these are some really uh, green pastures of ministry. And now you want me to walk, because I'm going to have to walk, 160 plus miles to this desert road where no one is. With no reason. Like, don't, don't you understand how much ministry I have to do here, God? There are people right here in Samaria that need the gospel. There's no need for me to go. Really, can't I do more where I'm at? I don't, I don't understand why I need to go from these green pastures to the wasteland alongside the road. Like, Abraham at least got some promises when he just listened to you by faith, Right? land and blessing. You're just telling me to go. Like The only thing that's promised is my legs are going to be sore and it's going to be hot. Philip doesn't ask these things. He's a better Christian than me. I do ask these things. And I think that God's response would be because I said so, right? But Philip goes. It's incredible. He's not deterred by his inability to understand why God would call him away from this wonderful ministry in Samaria to a desert road. Church, we need to be ready to obey God when it's hard and when it doesn't make any sense to us. Brother, sister, you need to be ready to obey God when you just have no idea what he's doing. When you're going, God, I don't, I don't understand things were going really, really well in Samaria. And now you've got me here in this wasteland and I don't know why. Doesn't make sense to me. It's funny, God likes to do this. He... he he likes to, just one step at a time, show us how we need to trust him. And in so doing, he teaches us to rely on him more. Rather than our own foresight or our own ability to understand. It's almost as if he says, you be faithful with today. You be faithful with what I've called you to right now. And you let me handle tomorrow. This is what Philip does. He, he can't see all the outcomes and all the workings of God, but he walks by faith. Are you ready to walk by faith when God's work in your life doesn't make sense? Maybe you are on that desert road right now. When God, this I don't understand why I'm here. Listen, God's sovereignty hasn't failed. He's in control. He has you right where He wants you. He has you right where you need to be. And Philip, right where he needed to be. Verse 27, there was an Ethiopian man, a eunuch, a high official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. Candace is just like Pharaoh. It's like a generic title. And she's like the queen mother. She runs things in Ethiopia, okay? 
So he is a high official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to worship in Jerusalem and was sitting in his chariot on his way home, reading the prophet Isaiah aloud. The spirit told Philip, go and join that chariot. When Philip ran up to it, he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? How can I? He said, unless someone guides me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This has to be some kind of a joke, right? So, so Philip is on the road, and all of a sudden, he goes, up, I, I'm going I'm to run up next to this chariot. And so he, he gets his running shoes on, and this isn't an incredible feat. The chariot, I don't know if it was drawn by animals or if it was one of those ones that people held and carried. But either way, not too hard to catch up to. And so he runs up next to it and just kind of ducks his head in, in, in my imagination and says, hey, what are you reading? And the guy's like, I was just reading Isaiah here. I can't really understand it. You want to get in with me in my chariot and explain it to me? Like, if this happens today, it, it's like the equivalent of you riding in the back seat of a cab or an Uber and just kind of reading your Bible at a slow pace and then someone just runs up next to your car, your down window, and says, hey, I see you're reading your Bible there. Do you understand it? Why don't you let me explain it to you? And you're going, hop on in. We'll split the tab. No, like y'all aren't doing that. You've got those windows rolled up, those doors locked, and some of y'all have your hands on your guns, okay? Like this is a, a scene that is comical. I, just, I can't imagine it was normal to run up to someone's chariot. But this is what Philip does because, listen, Philip understands where he is. He's like, okay, I'm on the desert road now. And he recognizes when the Spirit speaks to him. He calls him to run up next to the chariot. Now, I, the text doesn't say how the Spirit told Philip, go join that chariot. It doesn't tell us if it was a clear, audible noise or a clear uh, leading within him or if he got a text message, right? It doesn't tell us. What we know is that the Spirit was behind the urging of Philip forward. I think as Christians... We need to be sensitive to the Spirit's leading in our lives. We need to be ready to recognize unique opportunities that the Spirit brings to our attention. I always have to caveat these things, though. The Spirit, when people say, like, well, the Spirit led me or God told me, this can just be really, really misused, okay? Okay. Like I've heard people say, God told me the Spirit's leading me to leave my spouse. Like, that's not the Spirit. It's some bad tacos. Like, it'll pass. It's not, it's not what's going on there. I've heard people dress up their own desires in really spiritual language. Dress up their own sins and God told me so that no one can question them. Well, if God, if God said it. Well, no, we must interpret and make all impressions and leadings from the Spirit subservient to the Spirit's Word. The Spirit that speaks to us now will not contradict the words that He spoke then. His Word is living and active, and it's not in contradiction. Many, many a cult, many a Christian has found themselves going wrong 
when they elevated their personal experience, their personal feelings, above the submission, above submitting to Scripture. Scripture is our only infallible and sufficient means of knowing God. We must submit to it. That said, that caveat kind of, we must be ready to recognize when the Spirit does lead us. Ready to listen to what God might have us do. Maybe it's to go across the street and invite a neighbor to dinner. Maybe it's to start this or that ministry. Maybe it's to share the gospel with this or that family member. Maybe it's to be obedient in our own lives to Jesus for the first time. To move past offering lip service as we know ourselves to be frauds. We need to be ready to recognize these unique opportunities. And, and I want to encourage you to pray boldly here. To pray for unique opportunities. One of the uh, pastors I listened to preach on this text this week uh, said, uh, we need to ask ourselves, or you need to ask yourself, who's my eunuch? It's like a, who's your eunuch? I think it will benefit us if, if, you, if all of us find one person in our lives that doesn't know Christ, and we resolve to pray for them and to pursue them in friendship, and to pray that God would give us opportunity to share the gospel with them, and that they might respond with faith. If all of us go over the next year, every day, without fail, I'm going to pray for that one person. I'm going to tell you God will be faithful. I don't know if that means we'll see a bunch of conversions. But I do think it means much more, many more people will hear the gospel. And if I were a betting man, I would bet on conversions. God loves to answer prayers like these. Pray boldly. Pray that God would help you to recognize these eunuch opportunities and to share Christ faithfully. Philip recognizes this opportunity and he ends up sitting in a chariot with an Ethiopian eunuch. He didn't expect his day to go that way. I don't, don't anticipate. Verse 32 Now the scripture passage, he, that's the African eunuch, was reading, was this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb is silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who will describe his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. The eunuch said to Philip, I ask you, who is the prophet saying this about, himself or someone else? Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus, beginning with that scripture. God could not have made this any easier for Philip. I mean, if he wanted to make it a little hard, he could have had him in some random passage in Judges. Right, okay, i got to get from Judges to Jesus. But no, this is, this is Isaiah 53. We read it together this morning. This is the creme de la creme of the Old Testament. It's Jesus' biography written 800 years before he actually lived it. And in it we see 
that substitution is at the very heart of the gospel. The, the eunuch is going, who is this servant who bears the sins of the people so that they can be forgiven, so that they can be healed? Who is this righteous one who is crushed by God and yet sees light? Who is this righteous one who is crushed by God but then is exalted by God? And Philip is like, well, that's pretty easy. Let me tell you about Jesus. He is the righteous one. He was a perfect man. He never sinned. He's the innocent one who was condemned. And in this great miscarriage of justice on the cross, God judged the sins of all who would repent and put their faith in Christ. This Jesus is the one who died and rose again. This Jesus has died in your place. He died so that you might die to sin and He is raised so that you might enjoy resurrection life right now and have the certainty that you will be raised to life together with Him in the end. For all eternity, He says you can have forgiveness of sins and forever together with God and His people. That's the good news. That's what Isaiah 53 is about. It's really good news. I wonder, do you know how to share it? Because it, Philip shares this good news like from Isaiah, and he says, look, Isaiah 53 is actually just one part of the big story of the Bible, and really the whole Bible is all about Jesus. It's like, Jesus is the key. If you can't figure out how the Scripture gets to Jesus, then you haven't understood the passage. Jesus is the hermeneutical prism through which we must look to understand the Bible rightly. It's a fancy way of saying you have to read the Scripture with Jesus in mind. Jesus is the goal of the Bible. And if you want to know how to um, share the Gospel like this, explain who Jesus is to people, I think a really practical thing you can do is pick up a copy of the Jesus Storybook Bible. Immediately some of you are going, that's a kid's book. It is, but it is brilliant. It's a brilliant children's book. I find myself like, that's one I read to my kids and I'm usually like holding back tears like, you know, it, because it, what, it, what she does, what Sally Lloyd-Jones does is show us, just as the subtitle promises, how every story of the Bible whispers the name of Jesus. And what it'll do is it'll help you get the big picture of the whole Bible. And that, that's an invaluable resource in teaching you how every passage points forward to Jesus so that, that you can do what Philip is doing here. Explain who Jesus is to those who want to know. Can, can you do that? Can you tell people who Jesus is? Can you answer the question if somebody asks you, how can I have relationship with God? Can you tell them you can have forgiveness of sins and forever together with God and his people if you will repent of your sin and submit to Jesus who died for that sin in your place on the cross and has been resurrected from the dead. We need to, as Christians, be ready to explain who Jesus is. Philip was ready that he did explain it to the eunuch. And, and brilliantly so, I, can't, I have to believe that uh, in his explanation, he moved from Isaiah 53 to Isaiah 56. 
You see, this, this eunuch, we haven't really defined what a eunuch is yet, um, but it is somebody who has been rendered infertile through castration. Okay, if you need more on that, Google is your friend. Okay, as far as I'm going to go. But, but this eunuch, we're told, traveled to Jerusalem in order to worship God. And so he's, he's a God-fearer. He's sympathetic to Judaism in some way. I don't know if he's a proselyte or not. But he goes to worship. And the thing is, he, he could have gotten to that area of the temple that everybody can get into, but he couldn't have gotten to like, the real temple part. Still, after all his travels, he would end up separated from the presence of God. With me? He, he would, after, it was about 1,200-ish miles in that chariot. Long way. That's one way, 1,200 miles-ish. He's making this huge round trip to try to get closer to the presence of God. And still he would be outside of God's presence, despite his trip to Jerusalem. Why? Well, Deuteronomy 23.1 No man whose testicles have been crushed or whose penis has been cut off may enter the Lord's assembly. We saw a similar thing in Acts 3. Remember with the lame man who sat outside the gate beautiful? Remember we said it's not, it's not that God doesn't love or care for people with disabilities or ailments. He, he loves the weak. He loves those who are damaged. He loves those who have ailments. You can be assured of that. But the temple was all about teaching who God is. It was about teaching us about the holiness and perfection of God. Therefore, there were sacrifices that were to be offered. The sacrifices to be offered were to be without blemish, right? The priests and the people that were to enter the temple had to be cleansed, made pure, made holy. The temple taught all about God through symbols and pictures. And so a, a physical, your physical integrity was viewed as symbolic of moral integrity. With me? Therefore, those with, with defects and ailments would be barred from the temple. And so this African eunuch who traveled all that way to get into God's presence would be barred from that presence. And now he finds himself talking to Philip who's explained the gospel to him from Isaiah 53 which, again, not everybody, these scrolls just aren't laying around at the time. There's no Amazon. There's no bookstore on the corner. This eunuch was a wealthy man. He would have had to buy this scroll of Isaiah. And, and, and Philip is explaining it to him, and I have to believe he continued down that scroll of Isaiah to Isaiah 56, which says this, speaking in light of the new covenant that is to come. No foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord should say, the Lord will exclude me from his people. And the eunuch should not say, look, I am a dried up tree. For the Lord says this, for the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold firmly to my covenant, I will give them in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give each of them an everlasting name that will never be cut off. And so what this eunuch is realizing when he puts his faith in Christ is the blessing and the promises that come with the new covenant. Being a eunuch, he wouldn't have sons or daughters. His name wouldn't continue. 
But in Christ, he has promised something better than sons and daughters. Something better than a name that goes on for 10 or 20 generations. He is given a name that will never fail. He's given the name of Jesus. The only name by which anyone can be saved. The name that is above each and every name. The name at which everyone will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. This is the name he has given He's adopted into the family of God. He gets to enjoy the blessings of God's presence. The presence of the God he sought. He he couldn't get into it before. He was cut off from it. But now in Christ, that very presence of God isn't far away from him in the temple. It indwells him as if he were the temple. The presence of God is is within each and every Christian by virtue of our union with Christ. This this is incredible. This would have led to, and it does lead to, rejoicing. And friends, our story is no less dramatic. All of us are sinners who are cut off from the presence of God. All of us deserve death. All of us deserve an eternity under the good and right wrath of God. And instead he gives us what we don't deserve. A substitute. He he gives us Christ who dies in our place for our sin and raises for our justification. It doesn't, doesn't just bring us back to zero and all right, we're cool, the debt's gone. He, he deposits into our bank account innumerable blessings. Ephesians 1 tells us we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. Jesus himself, chief among them. This is really good news. This is reason for rejoicing. And this is what we see happening as the eunuch responds. Verse 36. As they were traveling down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, there's water. What would keep me from being baptized? Uh, quick note here, uh, most of your ver- Bibles won't have verse 37 in there. That's because it's not in the earliest and best manuscripts. And our guys that do text criticism, they take those thousands of manuscripts to make sure that we have uh, what most accurately reflects the original autographs. That's the original texts. And so you probably have a little footnote there that says verse 37 doesn't appear in the earliest and best manuscripts and therefore is not part of the original. If you want to know more about that, you can pick up Greg Gilbert's What is the Bible? Really small white book. I usually keep a copy on hand. I don't think there are any back there right now, but it'll be helpful to you if you're interested in textual criticism. Uh, All that to say, verse 37, it's theologically sound, but not original to the book of Acts. Same thing when we came across the ending of Mark in chapter 16. There's that big, long section, and we're like, this actually wasn't part of the ending of Mark. This is scribes later trying to help us out, but they actually kind of hurt us here a little bit. Uh, But with that little kind of commercial, I want to encourage you and say, these little notes in your Bible in random places should give you great confidence about what you have before you. No one who has edited your Bible or who is participating in textual criticism is trying to hide the Bible from you, making very apparent what was and what is reflective of the original text. And where it's not, where there's questions, they'll put verses in brackets or they'll give you a footnote and they'll say, we don't think this shows up. 
I mean, honestly, like verse 37, uh, where it does appear is just basically like, hey, do you believe in Jesus with all your heart? And we can baptize you. And Philip's like, yeah, I believe that Jesus is the son of God. I'm going, hey, that's theologically accurate. That's good. But it's not original to Acts. That's the end of that little sidebar. Um, Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, Verse 36, as they were traveling down the road, they came to some water. The eunuch said, look, there's water. What would keep me from being baptized? So he ordered the chariot to stop, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. The the eunuch cannot wait to put skin on his confession of faith. He believes in Jesus. At some point, I assume that Philip said, yeah, part of how you become one with Christ is you repent of your sin and you submit to his lordship, and you um, visibly display this change in your life by baptism. You are united with Christ in baptism. It is a sign of loyalty, like a wedding ring on one's finger. You can't wait to be baptized. So he's like, hey, there's some water right there, which again, we're going on a desert road here. And so there's a random oasis that allows him to be baptized. God's really worked all of this out just right. Philip's there to explain Isaiah 53 to him. Water's there for him to be baptized. God has them right where he needs them. Right where they need to be. He gets baptized and goes away rejoicing. When they came up out of the water, verse 39, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch did not see him any longer, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip appeared in Azotus, And he was traveling and preaching the gospel in all the towns until he came to Caesarea. I love the way the story ends. Philip is carried away by the Holy Spirit. And what that means is, I don't know. I like to think he teleported, right? He was one place and now he appears in, in this other place. I don't know, but it's just really cool. God's like, all right, desert thing is done. I got other things for you to do. And boom, teleportation. It's awesome. And the eunuch goes away rejoicing. I just love this story. God orchestrates everything. He arranges all the pieces together so that this one African man can know who Jesus is. And God cares about his church in this way. and He cares about individuals. He cares about you. God has put you right where he wants you. Christian, your job is to be faithful where he has you. Trusting him. Walking by faith even when you can't see. You need to obey even when it doesn't make sense. Non-Christian, God has you right where you need to be. Hearing the gospel, my prayer is that you would receive it, that you would believe it, and that you would be obedient to it. Belief is born out in behavior. All of us might take great comfort in the fact that our great God has us right where we need to be. His sovereignty never fails. And His love is always faithful. Let's pray. God, we thank You that You 
have arranged circumstances so that messy sinners like us could be in right relationship with you. That we could hear the gospel and believe in Jesus who died upon the tree that guilty sinners such as us might through his grace be free. God, help us to remember this good news as we go throughout our weeks and our days. Let us gossip the gospel. Let us live it out. Put Christ on our lips and in our minds. Help us to be sensitive to the leading of your spirit. Help us to obey your word and to be transformed by it. God, don't leave us the same. We want to be more like Christ today. In whose name we pray, amen.